Welcome to the Best Interest Podcast, hosted by Jesse Kramer, where we discuss today's best ideas in personal finance and investing. The Best Interest is a personal podcast meant for entertainment purposes only. It should not be taken as financial advice and is not prescriptive of your financial situation. Here's your host, Jesse Kramer. Hey guys, what's up? This is Jesse Kramer. Welcome to episode number five, the Best Interest Podcast. I'm recording this on March 8th, Monday, March 8th, 2021. And I want to start today with a brief shout out to my patrons. Yes, I have a Patreon and the generosity of my patrons, it helps keeps the light on here at the Best Interest, over at the Best Interest blog as well. So Alex, Brad, Nick, Kaylee, Tyler, Zach, Will, Andy, Nathan, Trey, Ian, Craig, Kelly, and Rosie. Thank you guys so much. Your patronage, your belief in my project keeps me going, and I can't thank you enough for it. If you're interested in becoming a patron, uh, the website is patreon.com backslash best interest. Today, we're going to talk about uh, a couple couple different topics. The first one is uh, we're going to look at Warren Buffett's recent letter to the Berkshire Hathaway shareholders. Because I think if we look at the way Warren... Mr. Buffett, I'll call him Warren. If we look at the way Warren writes, the way he talks to the shareholders, the way he thinks about his company, I think we can glean a lot of really cool lessons. And then in the second part of the episode today, we are going to answer a listener question from Chris and Jenny over at TikTok Life. TikTok Life is a blog uh, run by Chris and Jenny where they talk about their journey to financial independence and early retirement. Uh, Chris and Jenny from what I can see from when they interact with me, either on the best interest or on Twitter, they're really nice people. And they had a really cool question, I thought, about short-term savings and whether it's smart or not to invest that money. So with that, let's start the show. All right, so Warren Buffett is the uh, chairman of Berkshire Hathaway. You haven't heard of Warren Buffett before. He's one of the richest men on earth, a billionaire many times over. He made his money uh, through this company, Berkshire Hathaway, which started out as an investing company mainly. And we'll get into some of the details on that. And then sometime about halfway through its life, Berkshire Hathaway became more of a holding company. Uh, so it, whereas early on, Warren was investing in individual stocks, Later on in life, he actually began buying entire companies and, and running those companies or, or letting the companies run themselves and simply taking a portion of their profits as the owner. Uh, so we'll talk about some of those details. But every year, uh, Warren writes a letter to the shareholders of Berkshire Hathaway because the shareholders are part owners of the company. They, they trust their capital with Warren and he writes them a letter to kind of say, here's how the company is going. Here are some things I see or think about the economy. Here's what I think about the future. So we're going to take Warren's letter to the shareholders, which is naturally broken out into, I think, seven different parts, seven different sections of the letter. And I'm going to go through section by section and give you a brief rundown of what I think about Warren's notes to his shareholders. So part zero of the letter, if you will, is before we even get to the text, uh, Warren Buffett provides a table, a spreadsheet of the past 55 years of 
Berkshire Hathaway's returns. And he compares that against the past 55 years of the S&P 500's returns. And while there are a few years where the S&P 500 does perform better than Berkshire Hathaway, the vast majority of years Berkshire Hathaway outperforms the S&P. In fact, if you look at it on an annual basis, Berkshire Hathaway returns about 20% per year, whereas the S&P 500 only returns about 10.5% per year. And if you understand compounding math, you know that 20% isn't simply twice what 10% is, right? 20% will double your money in about three and a half years, whereas 10% will double your money in seven years. So over the course of 55 years, Berkshire Hathaway has doubled their investors' money something like 18 times or 16 times, whereas in the S&P 500 over the past 55 years, they've only doubled their investors' money seven or eight times. So two raised to the seventh or eighth is something like, what, 250 or 500, whereas two raised to the 16th is something like 25,000 or 50,000. So Berkshire Hathaway is far, far, uh, performing far better than the S&P 500 over the past 55 years. So I like how Buffett starts with that fact right up front. Here's how well we're performing. And then in part one of the text, uh, Warren Buffett's message is pretty simple. He says, we made money in 2020. Despite coronavirus, it was a decent year for us. And he explains in some simple terms how Berkshire Hathaway made their money in 2020. But he also says, P.S., I messed up, and I messed up kind of big on this purchase that Berkshire Hathaway made back in 2016. And in 2020, due to COVID, we really paid the price on that mistake I made a few years ago. He says, you know, my personal mistake, it was my mistake, period. He owns it. And in fact, we'll come back later and go through the text of how he owns it, because I think there's a really good lesson there in how he addressed his own mistake. In part two of the text, Warren Buffett writes about conglomerates. So as I mentioned before, Berkshire Hathaway is a conglomerate. They own many subsidiary businesses. And conglomerates in general have earned a poor reputation in the business world, in the investing world. Usually, they buy mediocre companies, because why would a thriving company ever want to sell itself to a conglomerate? They wouldn't. Usually, only struggling companies would sell themselves to a conglomerate. And then, conglomerates have been known in the past to use shady accounting practices to justify their investments. And oftentimes, they get caught in those shady accounting practices. So there's kind of this uh, two-pronged, <laughs> two-pronged rationale for why conglomerates are frowned upon. But, uh, Warren says, Berkshire Hathaway is different. We make smart moves, we own great companies, and we usually let the companies make decisions on their own. That is, we aren't uh, owning controlling shares of these companies, but rather we're owning non-controlling shares of these companies. So that's part two of the text. Warren Buffett simply wants to say, yes, we're a conglomerate, but we're a good conglomerate. Take that for what it is. Uh, part 3 of the text, I'll break out into a few subcomponents. So part 3a, uh, Warren writes about Berkshire's four biggest jewels. That's the four biggest holdings. He calls them their jewels. Uh, they are Berkshire's insurance company, their energy company, uh, the BNSF railroad company, and then Apple. Yes, the same Apple that, that you and I both know. Buffett also, he has a quote in the section about bonds and the mighty tumble that bonds have taken over the past four decades 
from a 16% annual return to right now just about a 1% annual return. And a bunch of investors have clinged on to that quote, and for good reason, because it's basically Warren Buffett coming out and saying, why exactly would someone want to have bonds in their portfolio right now? Uh, yes, maybe it's for a little bit of diversification, for a little bit of risk mitigation, but if your goal is to make money over the long term, bonds are a tough place to be right now. Even Warren Buffett thinks so. In part 3b of the text, Warren Buffett writes about stock buybacks. Uh, stock buybacks are these, uh, it's a behavior or a tactic where a company buys its own stock off of the free market, thus reducing the remaining uh, shares available for the rest of the market to hold. In most cases, this will, you know, we're reducing the supply of shares available and that will increase the price of the remaining shares available. So it's kind of like a quick and easy way in many cases to raise one's own stock price. So Buffett points out how Berkshire has bought back some of its own stock from the market in 2020, thus reducing the, the free supply of remaining stock. In turn, this increases the proportion of Berkshire stock that each shareholder holds. Buffett points out how Apple has done the same thing, buying back its own Apple stock. In fact, you know, as we mentioned before, Berkshire happens to own Apple. Roughly 5% of Apple stock is owned by Berkshire Hathaway. And so in 2020, even though Berkshire sold $11 billion worth of Apple stock, its overall share of Apple ownership actually went up because Apple bought back so much of its own stock. So Berkshire Hathaway came into 2020 with a 5.2% ownership of Apple. They sold some Apple, but Apple also bought back a lot of its own stock. And now Berkshire has a 5.4% ownership. So from 5.2 to 5.4% even though Berkshire sold Apple during 2020. Just kind of interesting how that works. In part four of the text, Buffett writes about the American dream. And so even if you're not really into investing, you might find this kind of interesting. He tells the story of C's Candies and Geico. These are two companies famous for, well, Geico, you probably heard of anyway. C's Candies is mostly famous because they are owned by Warren Buffett. And both companies were essentially startups at one point in time, but with a dream, with some hard work, and with some capital, capital provided by Berkshire Hathaway, both companies are now large, thriving businesses. Buffett then tells a story of two Omaha companies that Berkshire has invested in and two Knoxville, Tennessee companies that Berkshire has invest invested in. Uh, all of them were small startups from the mid-20th century, they all had tough times at various moments in the 1960s, 1970s, and yet they're all now billion-dollar companies. So is there some selection bias maybe going on here where Buffett's telling you some pretty good stories? I'm sure there is. But his point is that the American dream is alive and well. And his point is also that he and the Berkshire Hathaway team really know how to pick long-term successful companies. So here's a good quote from the section from Buffett. It reads, Today, many people forge similar miracles throughout the world, creating a spread of prosperity that benefits all of humanity. In its brief 232 years of existence, however, there has been no incubator for unleashing human potential like America. Despite some severe interruptions, our country's economic progress has been breathtaking. Beyond that, we retain our constitutional aspiration of becoming a more perfect union. 
Progress on that front has been slow, uneven, and often discouraging. We have, however, moved forward and will continue to do so. Our unwavering conclusion, never bet against America. So that quote has been bouncing around social media a lot in these past two weeks. Never bet against America, so says Warren Buffett. Part five of the letter, Buffett reminds readers how Berkshire Hathaway started. He, Warren Buffett, was handling a lot of money from his own family, his own family members, and his own wallet. And he only got paid if the business profited by more than 6% per year. And if the company did worse than 6% profits per year, the difference would be taken from Buffett's future potential compensation. Thus, Buffett explains, he developed an extreme aversion to permanent loss of capital. He didn't like to lose money. And he still handles the company's money, that is, shareholder money, with the same care that he handles his family's money or his own money. Uh, He also talks about the five main owner groups of Berkshire Hathaway. Four of those owner groups can be thought of either Wall Street-focused or Wall Street-adjacent. It's, you know, hedge funds, it's index funds, it's, it's individual investors on Wall Street or associated with Wall Street firms. Then the fifth group are the thousands, if not millions, of individual investors who have some really small piece of Berkshire Hathaway stock. Warren has a special kinship with these people. Uh, he says if Berkshire was a restaurant it would be a hamburger and Coke style restaurant. And he appreciates that the everyday shareholders are hamburger and Coke style customers. The point Buffett is making is quite clear. Dear investors, I see you. I treat your money like it was my family's money, like my livelihood depends on it. And I really appreciate you. I think that's pretty nice. Nice guy, Warren. Oh, and PS, Warren says, me and my partner, Charlie Munger, we are old as dirt but our successors will treat you just the same way as we did. So you're in good hands. Again, he's thinking of his customers, he's thinking of his shareholders. Totally makes sense. In part six of the letter, Buffett points out that Berkshire Hathaway owns more American-based property, plants, and equipment than any other company. That's a pretty cool stat. More than any other company in the world, or really in America, Berkshire Hathaway has a larger ownership of essentially infrastructure, right? Property, plants, meaning like industrial plants, and equipment. Next in line is AT&T, but Berkshire owns more than them. And then Buffett tells the story of two of Berkshire's subsidiaries. We already mentioned them. It's the BNSF Railway Company and Berkshire Hathaway Energy. Both companies are making big commitments to refurbing and upgrading America's infrastructure not only over the next few years, as in like two years, but really over the next few decades. Some of these projects that the the railway company and the energy company have are decades-long projects to improve uh, America's railway infrastructure, improve our electrical grid for, especially with green green energy revolution going on. So Buffett and Berkshire Hathaway are investing in America. And then part seven of the letter is simply that the annual shareholders meeting will be streamed due to COVID. So what are some good takeaways we can take from Warren Buffett's letter to the shareholders? I can think of a few right off the bat. First, Warren Buffett is really good at explaining things and explaining them in simple terms. 
if you're interested, I, I highly recommend take, take 20 or 30 minutes to read through the letter yourself. You can Google it, find it pretty easily. And in fact, I'll throw a link in the show notes. Uh, Buffett also reminds his shareholders that Berkshire really cares about them. And he does, I think, a really convincing job of that. It's important, right? I'm your CEO. I'm handling your money. I'm handling it as if it were my own. I care about you. I want to get you the best returns I can. I think that's a good message. And then, as I mentioned before, Buffett admits his mistakes, and he's pretty succinct about taking full blame. He doesn't throw anyone under the bus. So I mentioned this uh, at the very beginning, so I'm going to read you a quote now. This is about a company called PCC. Buffett says, No one misled me in any way. I was simply too optimistic about PCC's normalized profit potential. Last year, my miscalculation was laid bare by adverse developments throughout the aerospace industry, PCC's most important source of customers. In purchasing PCC, Berkshire bought a fine company, the best in its business. Mark Donegan, PCC's CEO, is a passionate manager who consistently pours the same energy into the business that he did before we purchased it. We are lucky to have him running things. I believe I was right in concluding that PCC would, over time, earn good returns on the net tangible assets deployed in its operations. I was wrong, however, in judging the average amount of future earnings and, consequently, wrong in my calculation of the proper price to pay for the business. PCC is far from my first error of that sort, but it's a big one. So, in short, what Buffett is saying there, he's saying PCC is a good company. PCC is like a Honda Civic. It's a good car. But Buffett paid $50,000 for that Honda Civic. And as we might know, if we're into cars, that's too much, right? He overpaid on the company. Uh, He paid too much. The company's earnings haven't quite supported that price point that he paid for it. But now that he owns it, he still believes that over the long term, it is a good company that will return good profits to the Berkshire Hathaway shareholders. And he, he admits full mistake, that he made the mistake. He doesn't throw the CEO, Mark Donegan, under the bus. It's a good message. So, and then the last thing I think, right, is we talked about it before. Buffett wants to send the message, Berkshire Hathaway is still betting on America. That's my breakdown of the Berkshire Hathaway shareholder letter. Uh, If you have any opinions of your own on the letter, if you've read the letter, or if you want to give me any feedback on my interpretations of the letter, please let me know. And with that, we're going to move on to part two of today's episode. It's a listener question coming from Chris and Jenny, who read a great blog called TikTok Life. And Chris and Jenny asked, in today's low interest rate environment, What are some creative and low-risk ways or places to stash cash that you're going to use in the short term? We're thinking of five-digit down payments, kids' college funds for next year, emergency funds, etc. 1% savings accounts are rough. So, Chris and Jenny, great question. Thank you guys a ton for for asking it. Uh, I'm going to break their question up into three subsections because a terrific person on reddit his username is we all got lost he was kind enough to to volunteer listen to all the episodes i've put out so far and offer me some feedback and he offered me some great constructive criticism one of his recommendations was to do the q a and to kind of break it down into some some easy bits some medium bits and some hard bits 
Uh, that way, everyone could kind of get a feel for, for the question and for the answer. I think it's a really cool idea. So we're going to try it out today, and we'll see if it sticks. So first, why would you want to save money in the short term? Chris and Jenny, they mentioned five-figure down payments. Well, that's what you need to buy a house, or at least for most people. A mortgage lender is going to say, sure, we'll give you some money, we'll lend you some money so that you can buy a house. But first, you're going to have to put down some cash yourself so that we know you're serious and so that you have some skin in the game. Most down payments are either 10% or 20%, somewhere in that range of a house's cost. So if you're buying a $200,000 house, which in many areas of the country is actually kind of on the low end, a 20% down payment of $200,000 is 40,000 bucks. So Chris and Jenny are asking, if you've got 20,000 bucks and you're saving up till you hit that $40,000 point, what should you be doing with those $20,000 in the meantime? Uh, Chris and Jenny, they also mentioned college costs and emergency funds. Um, and that brings me to some of the medium difficulty content in this question. Namely, it's factoring in how time adds a layer of challenge in finding the right answer. So let's start with an emergency fund. I think it's an easy place to start. An emergency fund is cash that just sits there, usually in your bank account, for something that might happen tomorrow. Well, you really don't know when it's going to happen. Something's going to pop up. It's going to be an emergency, and you need money for that emergency. It might happen today. It might happen tomorrow. It might not happen for another couple years. But one thing that's true about emergency funds is that we can't afford to have the money locked up in any way. This concept is called liquidity. We need money that is easily movable, like in a bank. And that money is considered to be very liquid. So if I need $2,000 today to fix my roof, I need to get that money. I need to have my hands on it right now so I can go pay a contractor. If that money is inside an investment or maybe in a car, let's say, it's not easily movable because first I need to sell the investment, sell my car. Um, the equity in your house is fairly uh, illiquid, right? You can't easily sell your house, turn it into cash, and then have that cash for reasons you for, for purchases that you need it for. Uh, but there's another time factor involved. If I need my money a few years out, then I could consider investing it in some way. And it really all comes back to risk tolerance. So let's say, like we talked about before, you have $20,000 in cash for a house down payment, but you need to save another $20,000 over the next three years, getting you to $40,000 total, because that's what your down payment is. So you have 20000 in hand right now. Should you do something with that money for the next three years? Well, you could. You could do something with it. You could, say, invest in stocks. Well, you might lose 40% or 50% of your money if a long-term bear market ensues or if the stock market crashes. Uh, we've seen 40% drops happen in 2000 in the, when the dot-com bubble burst. We've seen 50% drop, drop, drops happen recently. Uh, in 2008, with the uh, the big short, with the financial crisis. Are you willing to accept the risk that your investment, that you've been saving up for this house, it might drop from the $20,000 that you have in hand right now down to $10,000? And are you okay with the idea that you might not end up purchasing your house on time because of these choices you've made? For some people, and for certain needs, 
Losing money in this way is a disaster. You probably shouldn't gamble using this week's grocery money. I don't think you should gamble or invest using your emergency fund. That's just my opinion. Um, but some people would look at their housing down payment and they could convince themselves to use it as an investment. They might look at the math involved. They might look at some of the, say, odds, if you will, some of the past stock market data. And they say in a mathematical sense that they can convince themselves it's a smart move. And so they execute on it. We each have our own risk tolerance. And it's like I always say, personal finance and investing is this wonderful combination of math and psychology. You can convince yourself that the math works and that it's smart to invest this money. But from a psychological point of view, you have to be able to sleep at night too. So that brings me to maybe the higher difficulty part of today's answer. Um, I think this is actually kind of a neat idea, if I do say so myself. Uh, I've talked about target date funds before here on the Best Interest podcast. There are these retirement funds that automatically balance the risk of the fund based on a prescribed retirement date. And I know that, that might not make sense at first, but let's say I'm Jesse, right? I'm going to be 60 years old in the year 2050, and that's when I'm going to retire. So I might buy a 2050 target date fund, and Fidelity will automatically handle all of the assets in that fund to give me a proper risk exposure between now and the time I retire in 2050. So right now, with 30 years ahead of me, I can probably handle a much higher risk because I want those higher returns. But as I approach retirement, I can't afford to lose a large portion of my portfolio, so they're going to turn the knob the risk knob down as I approach 2050. So that's a target date fund. Um, and you can get target date funds not only at current dates or near-term dates, like say a 2025 target date fund, you can even get backdated target date funds. So, so Chris and Jenny, if you have a few years before a spending target and you want to take a little bit of risk, using something like a near-dated or backdated target date fund could make sense. It could. Now, for example, let's look at Fidelity's 2015 target date fund, as in it was meant for someone who retired five years ago, and they still might be holding that fund. It's built of 42% stocks, domestic and international mix. It's got 43% bonds in it, and the remaining 15% are near-term treasury bills. So the bonds and the treasury bills are fairly stable uh, slightly lower risk and lower return investments than stocks are. After taxes, this 2015 target date fund has returned about 5% per year for the past 10 years. Of course, most of that return is due to the stock market's current bull run, but the portfolio is balanced such that it hedges your bets, it hedges your downside risk. You're not going to lose 40% or 50% of your money in this portfolio, or in this fund, I should say. You also might not gain 10 or 15 or 20% per year like you would in other funds. It's lower risk, it's got some lower rewards, but it still gives your money some exposure uh, to, to some higher end rewards that you wouldn't get from a 1% savings account. Of course, one of the nice things about a target date fund is that it's incredibly low cost, like an index fund. Uh, the expense ratio on this one in particular, this 2015 target date fund, is 0.12%. And it's 100% hands-off, just like an index fund, right? Fidelity or Vanguard or whoever you use, they do all of the thinking for you. They do all the asset allocation for you. 
they determine how many stocks and what bonds, what percentages are in the in the fund, makes it easy for you. And what did John Bogle teach us? Well, in investing, don't do something, just stand there. Once you've invested, the fewer transactions you make, the better. So, Chris and Jenny and other listeners, what do you guys think? Is this is this a good answer, a creative solution? Or what would you do with your money if you had, say, $30,000 that you weren't planning on spending for another three years? Would you guys invest it? Let me know. And if you can't tell, I love answering listener, listener questions. So please, send me your questions. My email is jesse at bestinterest.blog. Or you can follow me on Twitter, username bestinterest underscore jc. Please consider subscribing to the podcast. And if you would... I'd really appreciate it if you could leave a rating or a review. Yes, this is because of the various Apple and Spotify algorithms. And the more, the more ratings, the more reviews I get, podcast does better. We can spread this good knowledge to more people looking to learn about personal finance and investing. Or, I mean, feel free, please feel free to share this content directly. As you guys might know, Ben Franklin once said, an investment in knowledge pays the best interest. And sharing with others is investing in their knowledge. And last, but certainly not least, thank you guys. Thank you for listening to episode five of the Best Interest Podcast. Mm-hmm.